you know what? It is well-meaning philanthropy that is at the heart of the orphanage crisis around the world. So the majority of orphanages in places like Asia and Africa and South America are run by philanthropists. Great, your heartbeat wants to do good, but how can you be sure that your intervention actually is making a difference? It's not enough to be well-meaning. We've got to be well-informed. Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as a regular listener, know the purpose of the podcast is to inspire you to be more philanthropic, and to act more sustainably and to embrace social entrepreneurship. And before we kick things off, please subscribe and please share with others. It makes a huge difference for us. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome on board Krish Kandaya, who is the founder and CEO of Home for Good. And today we're going to talk about family-based care. So that's a little bit of adoptions, foster care, everything around it. And we have a, uh, a wonderful guest who, who I've known for a little bit, but on a personal level, I always found his demeanor really agreeable, very good sense of humor, uh, humility, and uh, unassuming personality, but also with a big heart and really doing great things on the philanthropy side. So on that little introduction, Krish, uh, welcome on board to the show. Thanks, Alberto. It's a real pleasure to speak to you. Wonderful. Well, so if we're talking a little bit about family-based care, adoptions, foster care, Perhaps we start by finding out a little bit about Home for Good, the organization that you founded and that you're the CEO of right now. Well, I founded Home for Good about five and a half years ago. It came out of our own family's experience of fostering and adopting. We realized once we uh, welcomed three children into our home on top of our birth children, that in the UK there's a national shortage of foster carers and adoptive parents. Mm -hmm. And this isn't just an issue that's uh, restricted to the UK. In America, for example, there's over 110,000 children who are in the care system ready to be adopted and waiting for families. So um, the UK, the US, and then globally there's a whole issue about how we care for vulnerable children. But we thought we'd start in the UK to see how we can best move the needle on fostering and adoption and there's a kind of a major public relations issue when it comes to fostering and mm -hmm. adoption. For many people, adoption is just the third worst way to have a child. Uh, there's natural birth. And if that's not working for you, then maybe IVF. And if that doesn't work, well, there's always adoption. It's always the kind of third worst way. And when you're coming to adoption because uh, of infertility, and, and it's a subject we're not great at handling as a culture, mm -hmm. um, we, we're often kind of nudging couples about when they're going to get started to have kids and uh, just heaping more pressure on them, even going to buy a four pack of orange juice. It's called a family pack. You know, we're, we're, we're just we're not great at kind of walking pastorally with people that are wrestling with infertility. And um, we need to be better at that. But when infertility is your driver, what you really want is a baby a perfect mm -hmm. brand new little baby. And the kids that are waiting to be adopted in the UK are older children. And older just might mean three, four, five years old. Uh, they're normally in sibling groups, so they've got a brother or sister. They've often got additional needs. And 70% of these children have had some form of neglect or abuse. So these are not the kids that most people are looking to adopt. 
And so uh, Home for Good wanted to inspire a whole different range of people to come forward for adoption. Uh, And it's not ultimately about finding children for families. It's the other way around. It's about finding families for children. And that means a whole bunch of us could consider adopting that might never have done. We might already have birth kids. We might be single. We might be empty nesters. This is not ultimately about us. It's about putting the needs of the children first. And so we've been trying to persuade and inspire and encourage a whole different demographic people to come forward for adoption and also for foster care. Foster care has a similar PR problem. Many people think foster care is really for poor people who don't have any qualifications, uh, but they might have a spare room. And so it's it's a way to earn some money. And mm-hmm. we often advertise foster care on the back of buses. We say, you know, earn up to X thousand dollars or pounds a year by being a foster carer. And, and we think that it's not wrong to be paid to be a foster carer, but it shouldn't be your primary motivation uh, making money. So we're trying to inspire people. This is about the needs of children, not children as a means to money making. And that's the reframing of the whole fostering and adoption story we're trying to see in the UK. And we've been so encouraged. Uh, We've seen a a kind of tidal wave of interest uh, from all sorts of people, single people coming forward, uh, millennial couples coming forward who are saying we're not even going to try to have our own birth kids. We're going to use adoption as plan A. And then a whole bunch of people that, you know, we had never even thought about it. But because you put it on our radar, they've come forward. They're adopting two kids, three kids, four kids. It's just been an amazing time. Wonderful. And I imagine based on the sensitive nature of what you do, you you interact closely with the government? Mm, We do. Um, In the UK, the government is the corporate parent of every child that's in the care system. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a huge... um, uh, turn in the number of kids in care. So it's the highest it's ever been in England, 75,000 kids in care. And the government's really struggling to know where to find these carers from. Uh, so we work very closely with our Department for Education uh, and uh, actually with our home office as well, because uh, there's also a pressing need around unaccompanied asylum-seeking children that have fled war and terror sure. in places like Syria and Iran and Afghanistan and Eritrea. And, and we're trying to say, look, the UK is and has been a hospitable nation and so we need to kind of make sure that we're welcoming the right number of children that that we can look after so we work very closely with government departments our aim is to kind of bring civic society to come and intervene on some of these intractable problems that government can't solve on their own Mm -hmm. and so we want to be a a partner uh, which with ever political parties in power we want to be a partner with our government Mm -hmm. so that we can find good outcomes for children in care Good for you. What's the, um, so since we're getting into some of the numbers, you mentioned 75,000 and so forth. What are the main bottlenecks? What are the main um, dynamics that somebody like you or indeed a philanthropist who's interested in getting involved in this area, what are some of the things that we need to change? So I think that mindset shift is probably the biggest one. It's an inspiration issue. Uh, when you think about what we're asking people to do to become a foster care or adoptive parent, it's a really big ask. It's not quite the same as asking someone to give money. I mean, money's uh, a vital part of philanthropy. We're asking people to give a lot more than that. We're asking Mm -hmm. people to open their homes and welcome into their families strangers' children uh, who've had all sorts of... uh, ongoing trauma in their lives to love these kids as their own flesh and blood not just for a a hobby or a weekend but for the rest of their lives I mean that's a huge ask and so we we need to tap into a kind of core narrative uh, in people that hasn't 
often been opened up. I mean, we're living in a time of increased polarisation, nationalist populism, xenophobia, and what we're asking people to do is pretty countercultural right now. Uh, So I'd say that's probably the biggest challenge. Mm. And culturally speaking, you you mentioned a little bit about some of the... um some of the social tensions perhaps that we have in our society and uh, what's the uh, what's the state of affairs culturally speaking in terms of children their ethnic or racial background the families mm. that they end up with um, any preferences that people might have any biases yeah. that people might have what's what's this all about what's going on on that front so there are a whole bunch of different uh, issues there uh, sometimes there's a class barrier Uh, So people say, you know, the the kids are coming from uh, difficult uh, economic backgrounds and uh, sometimes there's this kind of uh, middle class saviour syndrome and uh, a lot of judgmentalism around the the birth parents. That's really unhelpful. Um, Sometimes people have aspirations to have what they call a rainbow family. So a a bunch of kids from lots of different nations. Mm. Um, And we're saying, okay, that, that is lovely. And if you've already done that, and you've welcomed kids from different countries into your uh, family through international adoption, my job is to say, how can I help you? But actually, a lot of these children would be better off living in families where they look like their parents. There's kind of longitudinal psychological studies done that although it's great for us as parents, for the kids, they can feel the the maths being done in the room when they walk in and they're black and their parents are white. That's really difficult. Um, So there's a whole bunch of sensitivities and we want to handle them well. We want to honour people that have, you know, done something incredible and welcomed the child into their lives but we really want to make sure it's about putting the needs of the children first that's our primary objective and our needs as parents come second it must have some sort of psychological impact going through does. the system and it's a difficult tension this isn't it because uh, i don't want to paint a rose tinted glass picture of what's going on here that many of the movies that you see about adoption, uh, like Annie, she's come from a difficult background. She's lived in, you know, institutional care, and then she gets adopted by a billionaire, and then they go dancing off down the street with no problems at all. No, seventy percent of children in the UK care system. I'm pretty sure it's the same in Canada and Australia and America. Have had trauma, like whether it's sexual or physical. Um, abuse on them or severe neglect and those things don't go away quickly and you know I was just on the phone with um, children and adolescent mental health services uh, today and there's an 18 month waiting list to be seen by anyone so we want to be really clear that this this intervention that we're asking people to make and it's it's a hugely philanthropic way of living isn't it is not for the faint-hearted, um, it's not a hobby, it's not Anna Green Gables and Despicable Me and all those kind of cuddly things. This is hard work and you're going to hit some major challenges and we want people to be prepared for it. And so um, I guess we're raising the game. Sure. We're talking about, I guess, a different level of philanthropy. What's the success rate, as it were, in terms of people opening up their homes and then saying, yes, uh, this actually meets with my expectations <laughs> and uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm loving it and I'm going to, this is great. This is going to enrich our lives for, for the, as long as we're around uh, versus those who might say, look, this is actually not what I signed up for. I, I wasn't expecting X, Y, or Z. And actually yeah. then the whole arrangement falls apart. 
Yeah, adoption breakdown is a huge challenge. It's a kind of double tragedy for a child because they've already been removed from their birth parents Mm -hmm. uh, for some terrible traumatic reason. And then they've been kind of promised a forever family with this new adoptive family. And we've heard horror stories of, you know, a little girl that got adopted and got handed back six weeks later Mm. because she didn't meet up to expectations. You know, that's really, you know awful isn't it and so she's faced this this new level of rejection um so we're really careful in our inspiration work not to sugarcoat it let's talk about the challenges let's get you know real life adopters and foster carers into the room talking about the realities of this thing because it's so much better that you don't jump in you know just just um naively but you've got your eyes open in, in what's going on yeah i guess one of the challenges that we faced alberto and it's it's um I'm really excited by the whole movement within philanthropy on impact Mm -hmm. and demonstrating impact. And one of our challenges that we've really been wrestling with is that people hear the message. So I'm often speaking at a conference and uh, we do a lot of work with churches. Uh, This Sunday, uh, unless coronavirus cancels it, I'm going to be at a church. It's got a thousand people that come. And, you know, it's, it's exactly the right demographic of people that might consider fostering or adoption. Um, they're kind of younger, they're professionals. Uh, some of them don't have kids yet. This is going to be an ideal audience. Mm-hmm. And I give my message and um, it, it gets planted as a seed. And then what often happens is three years later, someone comes back and says, you know, you gave a talk about church or you're speaking at that, you know, philanthropic event or you came and did a, uh, something in my company. Uh, I loved what you had to say. Uh, we started the adoption process and here are the two kids we adopted. And, and at one wow. level, that's amazing, right? There's, there's nothing like it to know that you've helped some kids and, you know, you've helped a family get inspired. But in terms of impact, they, they've gone off the radar for three years and it's only by chance that I'm bumping into them again and I get to hear their story so that's one of the kind of big um, tactical and strategic frustrations that we face and it's something we're really trying to work on right now how do we um, capture impact when our story is often um, long term slow burn uh, people are not making an instant response it's something they've got to live with and get get their heads around before they can uh, move on to the next phase and when they do move on to the next phase, when when they do take that step and uh, bring in a child into their uh, into their new family, uh, is there much of a link between between that family and say home for good if they were a, a trigger in yeah. helping that? And what does that look like? Are there some really remarkable stories of, of, of families that you've known over the years and you sort of have seen them flourish over time? Yes, definitely. I mean, it it is so lovely. And, and, you know, because, you know, the way the movie industry portrays it, it's a bit like, you know, those romantic films. It always ends with the wedding and then people disappearing off into the sunset. Mm. Actually, the the weddings and the marriage is the beginning, right? (laughs) That's not the end point. That's that's where the fun starts and and the trouble starts. You know, it's both exciting and challenging. It's the same with adoption. In a movie, adoption is the end of the journey. Well, actually, it's just the beginning. And so our whole kind of logic model um, was, you know, I I come from a, a Christian faith background and it was doing the maths around the numbers in the UK that really inspired me to start the charity. So when we started our charity five and a half years ago, there were 5,000 children in the UK waiting to be adopted. Mm-hmm. And we were short about 9,000 foster families. And um, 
our local authority told me that they had a strategy for recruitment. They were going to get the Boy Scouts to put uh, leaflets through people's doors, and mm-hmm. that would inspire people to adopt. I'm going, this sounds like the worst strategy to try and inspire people to adopt. And I worked out that in an average month, I was probably in front of five or 6,000 people speaking at churches or events. And so we did the maths and we worked out that within our database reach, we reckoned we had easy reach to 15,000, you know, pretty going for it, Christian church communities. And so that meant I just needed one new family to foster or adopt per church. Not not every Christian in the country to adopt 10 people. No, one new family to foster or adopt per church and the rest of the church to provide that ongoing support community around those foster carers and adoptive parents. And we could meet the entire current need. That that was a game changer for us. And as that message began to come out, um, it kind of went viral. And we'd meet so many um, churches that said, you know what, uh, there's a young couple that have adopted in our church. There's a whole bunch of foster aunties and uncles and adoptive aunties and uncles that support them. Uh, there are what we call plan B couples that uh, give uh, these adoptive parents uh, their business card. And they say, look, here's my mobile number. If you can't get to pick up your kids from soccer practice or music or mm. an appointment, We will drop everything we've got and we will go and come to your rescue because we want to support what you're doing. And and that supportive environment makes it so much easier for adopters to come forward to adopt some of these children that have been waiting the longest and may never get a family without those commitments around them. So we've been really encouraged. It's really inspiring. We haven't, you know, done the job yet. There's still lots to be done, but we're hearing so many encouraging stories of people that are moving forward in this way. No, that's great. And so you mentioned you, you engage a lot with churches. I imagine there are uh, equivalent organizations doing things in mosques, synagogues, and various other denominations yeah, or, or even se- segments that are not religious at all. That's right. That's right. We work very closely with a Muslim fostering agency called My Foster Family. Mm-hmm. And we've both actually been working with the government to provide what we'd call faith literacy training uh, to help Uh, governments figure out how do they get the most from the faith communities and the wider civic society and not let faith be a barrier or problematized but welcomed into the the sphere of of public good and so yeah it's been really really encouraging great and tell me a little bit about your personal story because i know you have a very interesting um narrative (laughs) and i i know a bit about it but i think our listeners would benefit from from hearing your story as well um why don't you tell us a little bit about that So I come from a a mixed race background. My dad was born in Malaysia. His dad was born in Sri Lanka. Uh, My mother was born in India and her dad was Irish. And, uh, you know, in the 1940s and 50s, um, that was quite an unusual context for a mixed race marriage to take place. And uh, my grandfather um, went to war to fight uh, against Rommel and the axis of evil. Uh, He died in El Alamein, but he left behind uh, a young wife and three daughters. And uh, because mixed race children were not kind of socially acceptable, those three daughters ended up in three different orphanages Mm. uh, all over India. And you might be thinking, Alberto, you know, what are kids doing in an orphanage when they've got living parents you know, sure. their, their mother is still alive she's capable of caring for them why are those kids in an orphanage well 
it turns out, and I've only just discovered this in the last two years, and it's launched a whole piece of work we're now doing on what we call deinstitutionalization. Mm-hmm. But most children in orphanages around the world have living parents. In fact, eight million children uh, are in orphanages around the world. And we think between 50 and 80% of them have a living mum and dad. And I'm pretty sure almost 99% of them have a living auntie, uncle or grandparent that is capable of caring for them. But because of social stigma or because of um, well-intentioned philanthropy that hasn't necessarily been thought out, we are unnecessarily institutionalising children. And that was my mum's story. She did not need to be in an orphanage. She needed to be in a family. And it was through my mum uh, being uh, welcomed to the UK by a grand aunt and she kind of modelled a, a radical kind of hospitality in her house. Mm. Uh, so every Friday night, you know, whoever was in town uh, and didn't feel like they fit in anywhere, my mum would cook up a big vat of curry and rice and they'd be welcomed in. <laughs> and that set a tone in my home. You know, there were always you know, yeah. random strangers that would be uh, visiting us, you know, and um, that showed me and uh, my wife uh, another way of, of doing home. And that was our inspiration, you know, one of the inspirations for us to become fostering and adopting as a family. So we have three birth kids. uh, We have three um, permanent other members of our family through fostering and adoption. And from time to time, we get a call from social services to say, hey, we know you've already got six kids in your household. (laughs) Could you take another one? And uh, my wife's amazing, so she never says no. So we we often have seven. So that's our story. It's out of our experience that we've realised, you know, how challenging it is to be a foster care and adoptive parents, but how rewarding it is. I, I don't know of any other joy quite like it, knowing that you're helping a child that's had the most traumatic beginning to their life flourish and grow and thrive. And for me, that makes it a lot easier to invite other people into that journey. I'm not asking people to do what I'm unwilling to do myself. And for me, that authenticity matters, that, you know, we're in this together. We really can change the lives of these children, but it's going to take quite an investment of energy and time and compassion. Absolutely. And it's good that you, you know, everything that you're doing, you you know firsthand, you know firsthand, whether it's anything having to do with with the sensitivities around race or ethnicity and... um, it's wonderful. That's wonderful. And tell me, in terms Thanks of where you're looking to to head for the next ten years, for instance, uh, as mm. we as we approach the sustainable development goals for 2030. Yeah, I would say um, the goal of finding a home for every child that needs one that has been the the operating vision of Home for Good since it's begun. And so we want to do that. We want to call this new cohort of foster carers and adoptive parents to come forward. We want them to get the support they need. Uh, because once you start intervening in this uh, care system, you you help a whole bunch of other major social issues. Mm. Um, so not everyone will be aware that, you know, the kids that age out of the foster system in the UK... Um, they make up 1% of our population, but they make up 25% of the homeless population. Um, kids that age out of foster care, according to ex-prison minister uh, Rory Stewart, mm-hmm. make up between 40 and 50% of our prison population. And in some areas of the UK, it's up to 70% of sex workers and trafficked young women are young women that have aged out of care. So these massive intractable issues of homelessness, sexual exploitation and criminalisation, a lot of them can be made 
different through starting further up the stream and making sure that vulnerable children get a loving and secure forever family. Sure. But it rarely gets the interest. You know, our government just invested £650 million in the budget for rough sleepers. Now, on my last count, I think we're talking about 6,500 uh, 6, people who sleep rough in the UK. But they're investing £650 million in sorting out this problem. I, I think it's great. Let's, let's help this problem. But nothing like that investment has gone into trying to find homes for vulnerable children. And, you know, therefore, in 10 years' time, if we haven't solved this issue, there'll be more homeless people, there'll be more people in prison, and there'll be more people being sexually exploited. So I want to start earlier. And I want to see that sea change happen. I want to see fostering and adoption not to see not to be seen as, uh, you know, the, the booby prize if you can't have your own birth kids or, um, you know, the, the backup option if you haven't got any qualification. I want to see it as a social good that's celebrated. Uh, I want people to aspire to be foster parents. I want there to be a queue of people longing to look after children rather than there being a queue of children longing for families. Um, so I think that is achievable. I think we can see that culture shift, but we need a wider collaboration and because children in care are invisible compared to homeless people, they don't get the attention. So mm. that's one thing I'm passionate about. I think the other thing I'd love to see happen, and this is interesting for the UK and the US right now because of our political um, situation, the whole place of the refugee um, in society, they're being problematised and demonised. And I, I, I want to recapture that sense of hospitality that was present in both of our nations. You know, I, I got to visit the Statue of Liberty and the poem on the side of that, you know, bring me your poor. That that was the call that America put out to the world. And that seems to be changing. And in the UK, we celebrate that in 1939, we welcomed 10,000 unaccompanied asylum-seeking Jewish children who were escaping the Nazis. They called it the Kinder Transport. We put up mm. a, a, sorry, they called it the Kinder Transport and we put up a bronze statue outside Liverpool Street Station to celebrate it. But that's not the narrative that's going on right now. We're kind of putting up the borders and we're, we're demonising the other. And so I think I'd love to see in 10 years' time that whole mindset shift changed again. Mm. And then finally, um, when it comes to the orphanages, Eight million children do not need to be in orphanages. They need to be in families. And we need to stop this well-intentioned but actually harmful intervention uh, around the world. I would love to see it if in 10 years' time we were somewhere uh, close to no more new orphanages and the majority of the children being transitioned back into their birth families or into local fostering or adoption situations. So that's my vision, and it's going to need a heck of a lot of investment and um, and philanthropy to make it happen yeah. but i believe it's possible and we will have we will reap so many benefits if we do this and if we don't if we leave it undone there are some massive cultural challenges that are going to face us in homelessness criminalization and exploitation and so if i'm if i'm reading into this correctly a big part of the solution as it were or a big part of what's required here is a um, attitudinal change increasing awareness and possibly yeah. this all is uh, a, a need of a rather robust communications piece it is and and look i know that many of your listeners are philanthropists and you know i've never met a philanthropist that wants to cause harm you know, every philanthropist I've ever met wants to cause good, you know, wants to wants to allow people to flourish and, and thrive. Um, but you know what? It is well-meaning 
philanthropy that is at the heart of the orphanage crisis around the world. So the majority of orphanages in places like Asia and Africa and South America are run by philanthropists. And it's, I sometimes say, look, it is well-intentioned, but it's not enough to be well-intentioned. Uh, we've got to be well-informed. We've got to make sure that the interventions that we're giving money to are actually genuinely doing good to children rather than making us feel better as philanthropists. I think that's one of my biggest challenges ahead mm. in that the orphanage conversation is going to mean there are many people. And, you know, to be honest, we did a survey with comrades and found actually that faith communities in general and Christians in particular are the most likely group to be giving and going to orphanages and volunteer groups or sending money seven times more likely than the wider population. So part of my job is to inform philanthropists that great your heartbeat wants to do good, but how can you be sure that your intervention actually is making a difference? It's not enough to be well-meaning. We've got to be well-informed. Because I think you're absolutely right that most people on the street tend to think of orphanages in a favorable light. They're, they're, unless you're in this space, mm. um, most people don't view orphanages as having anything objectionable to them. That's right. I mean, weirdly, right, this 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 is not a, um, a judgment thing for me because my mother grew up in an orphanage unnecessarily. And yet my wife and I, when we thought about our future plans, you know, beyond helping fostering and adoption in the UK, we dreamed of setting up an orphanage in some village somewhere in, you know, Africa or South America. And, and, and we hadn't joined the dots. Mm. But look, in the West, we know that orphanages are not good enough for our kids. We always try family-based care first and we only use institutional care if something goes seriously wrong. And when we use children's homes, they're normally temporary and therapeutic. We're trying to help a child be ready to kind of reintegrate with a family. But in the rest of the world, um, orphanages are plan A. And, and then we go and put them sometimes on tourist routes so that people can do safari on Monday, play with an orphan on Tuesday. I met one lad Uh, who was deaf but had had 500 different visitors come to play with him during his time in an orphanage and someone would turn up and they'd you know play with him give him a toy and then they'd leave again mm. and imagine that happening 500 different times what does that do to that child's sense of self attachment security the ability to make real and long-lasting relationships it's absolutely damaging but But the volunteer, the philanthropist, felt great. You know, put a smile on a kid's face, go mm. home. So, you know, we've got to make this not about us, the donors, but about the receivers. And to be really, you know, critical and robust to know that what we're doing actually is causing good. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me, if somebody's listening to this and they're keen to find out more, gain more insight into this area, or perhaps support Home for Good or... Or just have a conversation with you about your experience. What's the best way for them to uh, to reach out to you? Oh, I'd love to hear from any of the listeners that wanted to talk, and and maybe there'll be listeners that are a bit perturbed or worried or upset by what I've said. I'm happy to talk to them too. I'm really easy to find on social media. I'm at Krish K K R I S H K on Twitter. Um, homeforgood.org.uk is the charity and uh, there's a helpline that people could talk to uh, but reach out reach out to me on LinkedIn uh, I, I love to correspond with people on this and there's a whole bunch of articles um, that we've written into this space that might help put some more flesh on the bones both about reform within the care system in the UK 
but also the global uh, move towards family-based care. And we'd love to speak to any of your listeners about that. Wonderful. If you had one key takeaway for our listeners before we uh, before they, um, they finish listening to this show, what would that be? I think my one key takeaway has been I... It was when we jumped into this world of fostering and adoption um, that that my vision for what this charity ought to be came. It, you know, it wasn't just kind of, you know, Googling on a computer or going to a, a seminar. It was getting our hands dirty and becoming foster carers and adoptive parents that completely transformed my understanding of what children in care need. And um, we spent a long time researching to find out if anyone else was in this space in terms of the changing the narrative and the inspiration piece. Um, and so we really tried to not just be well-intentioned. We really wanted to be well-informed. We've consulted widely with government, with uh, academics, uh, with on-the-ground practitioners. And I guess that's the thing that I've learned, that, that passion and heart are not enough to do effective philanthropy. We've got to be absolutely informed and clear that our interventions are actually doing good. Um, a mate of mine wrote a book called When Helping Hurts. And I thought that 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 title was such a challenge to me to make sure that the philanthropy I'm doing, the interventions I'm doing really are having impact, making a difference, not just making me feel better. So th those are the tests I'm putting on my own philanthropy. And I think um, it's a way that we all should think about the subject. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Chris, look, it's absolute pleasure having you on the show. Uh, the Do One Better podcast is enriched by having your insight as part of its uh, archives. And to our listeners, thank you so much for listening. Please subscribe. Please share. It makes a huge difference for us. And uh, your support's always very much appreciated. Chris, thank you. Again, really great having you on the show. Brilliant. Talk to you soon, Alberti. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Mm -hmm.